the scripture reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 7 and 11. That's Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 7 and 11. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, Lord, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for this chance to gather before you and to hear it. And I pray you'd bless this time as we talk about it. May you speak to each one of our hearts, give each one of us what we need to hear today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So uh, many years ago, when I was a new missionary with Jews for Jesus, and uh, one of the things I was, you know, Jewish people who would want to learn more about Jesus, we'd often sit down with them and study the Bible with them. And I was always excited, usually the first time I met somebody, to show them Isaiah chapter 53. And I, I, I remember thinking, this is amazing. I'd show it to them, but I was generally disappointed by my reaction. I found a lot of people kind of looked at it and didn't really, weren't nearly as impressed by it as I was. And I found one of the problems was that people simply, you know, didn't understand enough about the Bible to grasp the significance of what they were reading. Then there was a whole second group of people where it wasn't an issue that they didn't grasp the significance from not knowing the Bible. They would actually say something. I heard this many times. I'd read Isaiah 53 and they'd say, well, that's fine. That's the New Testament. I'd, I want to see something from the Old Testament that tells me something about Jesus. And I'd be like, what? And, and the reason they would see that is they would read it and go, well, that's everything I've heard about Jesus. You're not realizing it's 700 years before. Um, you know, in the month of August, we've been looking at some passages which have show the way the Bible kind of links all over the place, you know, showing passages which show, wow, the Bible, this, this seems to be speaking all across it. And one of the reasons we do that is, in, in one sense, it shows us, it helps us to study the Bible better, to see that these independent passages are not independent, but they connect everything else. But I think it also shows us how amazing the scriptures are. You know, that this book, you know, written over 1,500 years by 40 or so authors in three different languages 
is actually written by one author, God. And, uh, but I think, um, so what we're hoping to do is to take these passages and show the way they connect across places. Now, when I had the idea of um, going to Isaiah 53 and talking about that as part of the series, my first reaction was Isaiah 53, everybody knows that. It's too familiar. Um, you know, we've talked about it a bunch of times. And so I actually asked one of our staff members, I said, is that, you know, do you think this is just way too familiar to use? And they went, you know, very familiar to you, <laughs> but not necessarily very familiar to everybody else. And then I went, I went, is that really true? And so I just asked a random person in the church, I go, hey, do you know Isaiah 53? And they said to me, is that the one with wings? And I went, no. All right, I'm going to preach on Isaiah 53 because it is one of the most important passages in the scripture. You have certain ones of the greatest hits of scriptures, a passages which everyone should be familiar with and understand. Isaiah 53 is one of those. You could say it's a foundational passage, but I actually, you know, in a metaphor sense, don't like to think of it as a foundation so much as a climax, as the top, in a sense of almost all the scriptures are building up and to a you know, climax in Isaiah 53. And then the passages, especially in the Old Testament afterwards, in some ways look back at Isaiah 53. You'll see the ones later in it. And then the New Testament, in, in some sense, many senses, is actually enacting <laughs> Isaiah 53. So it's this critical passage. So I hope you know that this is one you need to have in your pocket and understand because it is so remarkable. So we're to begin by looking at Isaiah 53 and looking at some of the, why is it so remarkable? And you know, what does it say? As uh, Johnny read a bunch of it now. And then we're gonna go look and say, now how does it uh, speak of Jesus? You know, why would someone think it's part of the New Testament? And then and, in what sense is it you know, climactically bringing all the scriptures together? And then finally, why ultimately it's a call to each one of us? You know, and what is that call to us that Isaiah 53 is making? All right, so the, the passage, the way it connects into the rest of scriptures, and finally, it's called to us. So firstly, what's happening in Isaiah 53? What is so amazing about this passage? The passage actually begins back in Isaiah 52, in the uh, 52, 13. Remember, all the chapters and uh, verse breaks all came into the Bible much later. They're not in the original text. So the passage really begins a few, chapter, a few verses earlier with this. And it says, see, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised, uh, lifted up, and highly exalted. And that word servant is part of a, this phrase that happens again and again in Isaiah. Four particular places, which scholars call the servant songs of Isaiah. When it speaks of God's specific servant, they're very messianic passages, this uh, special servant of God. For instance, in Isaiah 42, it says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, which you can hear some of Jesus' baptism language, you know, my, my son whom I'm well pleased there. But then it says, I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So you see, this is why this is speaking of the Messiah. You know, he is the one whose God's spirit is on. He is going to bring justice to the nations. And uh, so it's this servant. And it says, my servant here will act wisely. He'll be raised, lifted up and highly exalted, which is unbelievable language. You know, remember in the Hebrew when it kind of like, you know, wants to amplify things, it kind of puts them next to each other. And here it's like a three thing, you know, raised, lifted up, exalted. It's just like building up to this huge thing. And this is the same language, especially the, the first two words, you know, raised and lifted up. This is spoken of God in Isaiah chapter six. You know, he was seated on the throne, 
you know, raised and exalted, high lifted up, two of, the, two of the three words are right there. And so this is almost speaking like of the servant as God. I mean, it's incredible language to use of a person, unparalleled. But then here's the craziest part about the whole passage that makes you kind of stop and go, what is going on? Is it says, my servant will be raised, lifted up and highly exalted. And then it says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. And immediately you go, what is going on? Wait, the, you know, the servant with the language of God, you know, raised, highly lifted up. This is the servant of God who is marred and disfigured beyond any person ever is almost what the language would say. You know, there's been no one who has been as marred and disfigured as him. And you're worth a strange conundrum. Wait, wait, how is this happening to the servant of God? Why is this happening to the servant of God? And this conundrum then even continues in in the first verse of Isaiah 53, when it says this was also just this strange language. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That may not seem like some very strange language. It is very strange language. Um, so the, basically what's going on there, and I'll just pull it off for a second. The, you understand what the arm of the Lord is, right? When the, when the, you know, it's not literal stuff, you know, when they're talking about God's parts in the Bible. Like when it says the eyes of the Lord, it speaks about how God sees everything and knows everything. You know, God's eyes are searching to and fro throughout the earth to see the one who puts this hope in him. God is aware of that, of everything that's going on. That's what it uses like God's eyes. When it uses the arm, it's talking about the way God reaches into history and does stuff. Now, God's always active in the world, but when the arm of the Lord means, it's sort of like this unmistakable way in which you know that he has intervened in history. It says he bears his holy arm at one place, meaning you're going to see God has taken action now in the world. You know, famously, it says God redeemed the children of Israel out out of oppression from Egypt, right, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And furthermore, that outstretched arm that he acted, it said all the nations who heard of this report were scared that God had bared his arm and acted in history, right? Then you come to this passage and it says, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Meaning God has reached into history and acted, but people don't believe it or they haven't seen it or they're not aware of it. There's some mysterious covering to it happening. Very strange language with both these things. So it kind of starts with a conundrum. And then it goes on to tell the story. In what way did God reach in? In what way has the arm of the Lord acted? And it begins by saying, well, this man, he grew up like a shoot before us, like a root out of dry land and uh, ground. He said it was nothing in his appearance that we should be attracted to him. You know, he's a man, there's nothing remarkable about the way he looks. And then it talks in this ways about how the difference between how people perceived him and what really was happening. It says like, here's how people perceived him. It says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom they, people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. People thought, who is this? This is nothing. You know, he's despised, rejected, suffering. But yet surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we, we considered him punished by God, 
stricken by him and afflicted. So from our standpoint, this guy was cursed, right? He was afflicted, smitten, punished by God. You know, we saw him as nothing, nothing special, but man has suffered. But what was really happening is in the next verse, because in the big reality, here's what was going on. He was being pierced for our transgressions. And that word pierced, by the way, is fairly remarkable considering there was no crucifixion 700 years before the time of Jesus. And I don't think it, you know, it allows for the crucifixion. I don't think necessarily predicts it, but yet it's remarkable language in any case. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So that's the purpose. You know, from the big sense, you know, he's not afflicted by God. Or in a sense he is, but here it's happening because of our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, I want to hit that one phrase, which seems weird, but it's very important. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. What's it mean by that? Uh, you understand peace, right? Shalom, the idea is wholeness, right? So the thing that brings us wholeness was on him, the punishment. And when you ever think about ideas of justice, what idea of justice is to try to restore wholeness in the world. Right? And if you understand the laws of the Old Testament are trying to bring back wholeness. For instance, if someone steals 20 bucks from you, how can you be made whole again? Right? You're made whole again because they give you back 20 bucks. And perhaps they'll give you a little bit more than that because there was some distance of time you didn't have it or there was some shock you went through when they took it. But the idea of the penalty, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, all that stuff is all, it's not about punishing someone. It's about seeking to restore wholeness. Every time something bad happens, there's a hole and then something needs to be done to try to restore wholeness. What this thing says is there's a punishment that's necessary to restore wholeness to all of us because all of us have done things, all of us have done wrong. There's a debt we all have and that punishment that brings wholeness is carried by him. So what's happening to him is bearing that punishment. And then it says remarkably, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, every one of us. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid, it's an amazing language, laid the iniquity of us all on him. And I use that language right there and even that hand things because this is like um, Old Testament sacrificial imagery, particularly of Yom Kippur, when the, the, you know, the, the lamb would, uh, or goat would bear the sins of the whole world, all of Israel, once a year on its head. And it says that language that the lamb would then uh, take, one goat would be sacrificed and one goat would go out through the people saying he would bear on it the iniquity. And that was all symbolic in the idea that was teaching you that your sins could be borne by another. And this lamb would then bear your sins and saying, ultimately it's speaking of the Messiah, the servant of God, who would take the sins of the world laid on him. So as we look at this, you could say, well, I hope you can see, man, I, I, I could see why someone would think this is Jesus, right? You're looking at this language going, wow, this sounds just like the New Testament, right? Where it says, you know, Jesus suffered, you know, he bears the sin of our world, right? Jesus died for our sins. Like that's the language. He suffered for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, it looks just like that. You know, he was pierced. 
He was um, a servant who was high and lifted up, yet marred and disfigured, exactly the way Jesus is revealed in the New Testament, right? The one who is, bears the very, you know, is the son of God, and yet suffers on the cross. He is just a man. You know, nothing in his appearance by his manhood that would draw you to him. He was despised and rejected by people, right? His own received him not, even as John says. Like a lamb, he was silent, which we didn't go over right here, but Johnny had read, you know, that language it says here, and which is exactly, you know, the picture of Jesus before Pilate who would not, you know, defend himself. And then it says, after his suffering, he'll see the light of life. It's read in verse 11, you know, which is again, so prefiguring the resurrection. So you see why this like, you're like, oh my goodness. And again, this is 700 years before Jesus, right? So it's, um, oh, there we go. So 700 years before Jesus, here it is in incredible detail why someone would look at it. But uh, I think this understanding Isaiah 53, it's not simply that, wow, you really trust the Bible because of this amazing prediction before all this time and how this prophecy was fulfilled. Although I think that's true. What you need to understand about Isaiah 53 is the reason it so carefully does it is because it, it is it's climactically bringing together all that the Bible is talking about you know, for the very beginnings of scripture. I would say one of the key verses to catch that, that implies that is in verse 10, it says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Lord makes his life an offering for sin. So the Lord is doing this. You know, many people look at what happened at Jesus and they say, well, it's just this amazing uh, prediction about Jesus dying as if, um, let me put that back. Whoop. Can you go back one? Thank you. Um, that thing, this is, this is an, it, it predicted this incredible injustice done to Jesus. This incredible injustice of our rejection, of our unjustly, you know, having, you know, crucifying him, our rejecting of God's visit. But that's not really what's going on. Remember Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down, right? No one took it. To understand it as a human act of injustice is to miss it. This was God's plan. It was the Lord's will to crush him, right? This is the plan of God, right? So this whole thing that's happening here, you've got to back yourselves all the way up to the beginnings of scripture and realize all of scripture is talking about this. You know, you go back to the start of Genesis, right? God made us and created us to be in fellowship with him, to know him and to be with him, to love him, to work alongside of him. And it says in Genesis 3, you know, they, we disobeyed God. We didn't trust him. And we separate ourselves from God. And the whole story of the scripture is how God's going to bring us back into that place with him. That's essentially the great story of the Bible, how God's going to restore that wholeness. And in the purpose of restoring us, he reveals his very nature, his character. We understand what God is like. He displays his glory, his love, his commitment, his faithfulness, his truth, all that through this great story. And even uh, then you, you, he, re, he creates a people, Israel, right? Whose purpose is to reveal this to all people. That God's going to show himself. The temple itself, right? was just a garden of Eden. It was a replica of it. And we were showing the way, hey, here's how the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God is, right? On one day a year on Yom Kippur, day of atonement, when they would be one who would bear the sins of the whole nation. And the whole thing's pointing ultimately now, as you come to Isaiah 53, you're like, here is where it's being fulfilled. 
It's God's servant, his high and lifted one, who's going to bring justice to the nations, will come in and be marred and disfigured, and the iniquities of the world will be laid on him. Right? The great, and the, all the scriptures are pointing towards this climactic thing. This is, this is how it's going to happen. And then as you look past it, right, the prophets are looking back towards it. If you remember on July 4th, Erez Sorev came in and did an amazing teaching on Zechariah 3. And Zechariah 3 even talks about when the Lord takes away the sin of the whole land in a single day. You know, and as he uses all this Isaiah language. And then um, and at Jeremiah, right, talks about this new covenant, right? When God, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, puts a new heart in us and writes his law on our hearts. He says, why? Because I'll remember your sins no more. And that will all be dealt with through what Jesus did on the cross, right? And you come to the New Testament, and here is the enactment of this whole plan. You know, the, the high and lifted up, the exalted one who's come miraculously into this world, who lays down his life and bear and you know, is crucified and rose from the dead, and becomes the final sin bearer that makes the way by which we can come to know God, to be cleansed, to be reconciled. Now, as I said, all this stuff is ultimately uh, a challenge to us, isn't it? Now, one, one last bit of that thing, which you got to catch in Isaiah 53, is it says, uh, this is actually in that chapter before, after it talks about uh, disfigured. It says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, right? His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. It says, so he will sprinkle many nations. Really interesting language. And again, where are you? You're in the sacrificial system, right? The sprinkling of sacrifices. And even in Yom Kippur on that day, and on that day, the high priest would take this blood of the sacrifice and he'd sprinkle it on objects of the tabernacle. And the idea was that, that those objects would then be made holy and cleansed because of the sprinkling. And it wasn't that the blood was magical. It's that the blood represented the life. And it was showing that this life over here that could die could have the ability to, to make holy things over here. That's kind of the idea of it. We talk about the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The idea that Jesus's life and his sacrifice could then be applied and transform our lives. Now, that blood could be sprinkled on us. And here it says sprinkled on all the nations which is key, right? It's not just Israel, but it's of all the nations. Remember the, the servant song in Isaiah 49 says, now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And Gentiles and nations, same word. The idea that this would, the sprinkling to the nations would be that this sacrifice be, this is the way God's going to restore all things and all people. And we know from the New Testament, they take it and they say, you know, uh, go into all the nations, you know, make disciples of them, you know, and this is that we are to take this word out there, that this blood can be applied to all people all over the world and applied to us. And we can be cleansed by it. So let's bounce back to that first verse then of Isaiah 53. Remember it says, who has believed our report 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That is that now we have a report, a report that God has reached into history, that God has made redemption, that he has created a way by which we can be reconciled to him and be cleansed by him. And the question is, will you believe the report? Will you receive the report? And when you receive the report, so the arm of the Lord is revealed to you. And you realize that indeed God has done this. That what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago can be sprinkled on me. And I can be made holy and cleansed. I can be uh, reconciled to God. And then I can continue to be then a vessel which brings the report out to the world as well. So that's the question to each one of us. Do we really believe the report? Has it been revealed to us that the arm of the Lord has happened? Have we been able, do, have you been cleaned? You know, have you taken that thing? And not just, and, and keep in mind, you don't automatically receive the report and believe it because you grew up in church, you know, or because you've heard it, right? Do I really believe it? Have I really received it and taken that and known the cleansing from God and walk in that cleansing and become vehicles for that report to go out into all the world? That's really what Isaiah 53 is ultimately about, how God's holy arm has been bared, how God has reached into history and redeemed us. Has he redeemed you? Has he taken hold of your heart? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, uh, we are amazed by your scriptures and amazed by the gospel message, the report, the good news that you have forgiven us through what Jesus did on the cross. Help us to, Lord, to believe the report and to, Lord, we pray that you will reveal your arm of the Lord in our lives. That we will know beyond a shadow of doubt your cleansing blood and that we will be vessels that speak to others, Lord, that your report will be revealed around the world to all people, to the people of Newton, to the people of our nation, to the nations of the world, will come to know and believe and love you and receive your reconciliation. We bless you, praise you, and exalt you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.